0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Physiology at Leeds Beckett University and Research and Innovation Manager at the RFL, Ben Jones. Thanks for tuning in to episode 121 of the Pacing Performance Podcast. So today, really excited to get uh, not only a great guy, but a um, someone who's become a, a good friend of mine in Ben Jones, who has, as I say in the episode, a multitude of cool job titles, uh, including a senior lecturer in sport and exercise physiology at Leeds Beckett University. Um, so we, in this episode, discuss a lot of the structures that Ben set up at Leeds Beckett which feeds in nicely to Yorkshire Carnegie, the rugby union and Leeds Rhinos obviously in the, in the Super League, in, in rugby league um, so it's really interesting to see what kind of structures Ben's put in place uh, on an academic and a, an applied side and how them to intertwine really nicely so hopefully that is um, interesting and I'm sure it's definitely something to think about for other guys in, in clubs and institutions and how they may replicate a similar thing whether that be tapping into a local university or if you are in a university how can you reach out to the clubs um, and, and be a kind of a mutual success story really like, uh, like the guys at Beckett so just before we get into the chat with Ben got a sports science minute with the guys at Coach Me Plus who I'm really appreciative of their sponsorship um, so every other week just provide a little nugget of information on different aspects and today it's the post training routine so as Doug says in the episode in the in the snippet pre-exercise or pre-training routine is also kind of a, a big factor and a big um, staple of the sports science personnel but it's that kind of post post training routine um, that sometimes need to be uh, needs to be improved so hope you enjoyed the chat with the, the little snippet from Doug and I hope you enjoyed the chat with Ben and I will speak
1: to you soon. Hi, this is Doug McKenney from Coaching Plus with your Sports Science Minute. Today we're going to discuss emphasizing post-practice routines. Generally speaking, you know, coaches, especially head coaches and positional coaches are right on top of doing what's important for their athletes from a pre-practice routine uh setup but they don't give much thought to the post-practice routine. And I think that's something that the sports science personnel, uh, the sports performance, the strength and conditioning, the athletic trainers can place an emphasis on it with support from the head coaches and positional coaches. It's just as important. As soon as practice is over, the preparation for that next session begins. You know, there are a lot of things that can take place here that are really important. All athletes should have a plan of action, that uh, continually puts them in a better place to be elite performers and that plan of action is very similar to what you would do uh, on the front end you know basically you you come in and you're going to weigh in so that you know what your pre-practice weight is you're going to get uh, uh, treatments needed treatments in the in the training room you'll fill out a questionnaire wellness questionnaire Uh, Jump on a bike or a treadmill, begin your warm-up. As a team, do a dynamic active warm-up, statically stretch, and then practice begins. Um, And I think the the typical is as soon as practice is over, everybody's kind of in a hurry to get out of there and not go through the routine um, that potentially could be very helpful to them. Uh, You know, obviously, uh, we want to focus on hydration, on glycogen repletion. Um, But it begins certainly by weighing out. You go and you weigh out. Okay, now I know I've lost four pounds. I can begin to replace that fluid loss with uh, electrolyte-rich drinks. While I'm doing that, I can go in and get a contrast bath. I can roll. I can stretch. Uh, I can fill out a post-session RPE. Um, I can, you know, do all sorts of Um, cool-down type stuff that actually elevates my chances to perform better the next day. But I think the key component here is that it has to be emphasized by the sports performance staff, athletic trainers, and you can actually design and implement something for the athlete, share it with him, go through it with him, so that he sees as much value in the post-practice routine as he does in the pre-practice routine.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, this evening I have the pleasure in speaking with Ben Jones, and I'm just going to reel off the three job titles that I've got written down. So, we've got Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Physiology at Leeds Beckett, Research and Innovation Manager at the RFL, and Head of Academy Sports Science, SNC, and Research, Yosh Carnegie. What a set of job titles. Welcome to the podcast, Ben.
2: Thanks, Rob. How are
0: you? No, I'm good, mate. It's good to have you. Good to have you. Um, So three job titles, just want to give us a little bit of a a background on you and maybe a little bit about each of them job titles.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, So I started started within academia, doing my degree, um, doing my master's. During that time, started working in professional sport, then um, struggled to get a job in professional sport, so opted for the option of a a PhD and engaged in research. My PhD was... um, Pretty lab-based, um, Started working. then I started working in professional sport, um, then I was successful uh, enough at getting, uh, or lucky enough to get a job in, at university, at Leedsbeck University where I am now. And then when I took that job, I was keen to make sure I kept a foot in the, the applied world, so um, continued working at the club I was at then. And then through the research that we're doing and through my role at the university, I've managed to also take on other external consultant's roles, which is why I end up with um, lots of jobs titles. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to touch on, and I, I kind of know a little
0: bit little bit about it, but just want to talk to us a little bit about the kind of relationships and structure you've set up at Leeds Beckett, which has enabled you to do the things like get these fancy job titles at Yorkshire Carnegie and uh, the, the influence you have kind of in the, in the Leeds area.
2: Yeah, I suppose I'm in a really fortunate position that that the relationship between the university and professional clubs is really strong, and it's in, in, in a really strong position from um, a high level management point of view. So sponsorship, um, naming of names on shirts, etc. But actually, where where it really works is that it that it links on the ground as well. So we currently have. Um, a large number of joint-funded and joint-appointed staff who act as researchers and practitioners, um, and that's at at Yorkshire Carnegie and and at Leeds, I know. So I think where where the the relationship starts, the relationship starts probably first of all by location, by the fact that they're they're close to each other, so actually um, working between two sites at 10 minutes away isn't a problem the way that then the relationship works is that relationship works because of the beliefs of the people who are involved in it that actually that value applied research and that's in terms of what applied research gives you from an academic knowledge generation point of view but then in practice what actually that gives you in terms of um, I'll say competitive advantage but, but I don't think that's the only reason in terms of actually understanding probably key principles before potentially others and and where, that's, where that usually um, becomes evident is understanding what doesn't work. When you think that something may potentially work, you do research today and you realise that ah, it, it had nothing to do with what, that whatsoever. So it allows you, the practitioner, the person um, working in the field to then concentrate on something else. And and kind of that, that shared philosophy of, of valuing applied research in addition to... Um, Kind of the the management the agreements at management level is what makes the model work really well.
0: So, how, so you've got twelve PhDs, is it?
2: We the, the 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 PhD journey um, and and how we generated our our project as it's it's grown organically. So we um, we started in, uh, in February two thousand and fourteen. We were we recruited um, three match funded PhDs between. The university um, and the rugby league and rugby union club at the time, and they specifically focused on um, areas in nutrition, in training load, and then in in youth development type work. They worked really well because because what the what they allowed us to do was to 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 analyze an area in depth to actually help our understanding of of what we were currently doing. Um, we then recruited four more PhD students in October 14 and those four PhD students basically aligned with the growth of Yorkshire Carnegie as an academy um, and in collaboration with, with their academy director at the time we, we recruited these staff to basically act as s as and um, and then the following year from that we then recruited um, five more PhD students to, to basically branch out into some schools we were working at and also then to offer some more support um, within the the club we're working at and I think the unique thing of of it might not be unique but one of the key principles around what we do is is um the the PhD students are working really hard at integrating the research and the practice together but one of the key principles around why we think it's a successful model is they all undertake part-time roles at the club so these aren't PhD students who are doing 40 hours a week of, of s of coaching and then having to shoehorn research back into what they're doing. These are part time um, S&C coaches or sports scientists which are working with part time squads. So squads which are coming in two three evenings a week, etc. And and that allows them enough time then to, to answer questions properly to then get into some of the, the more complex questions um, to actually then progress practice within the club. So if we look at why we believe this model, this was um, a joint agreement between the club and the university worked. One of the things we found really challenging within the club environment was finding um, really good part time staff who, who stayed, who didn't then leave at the first full time job opportunity, because the reality is those really good part time staff were doing that part-time before a full-time job came up and if you operate in a an organization where you have high staff turnover it's really hard to then develop um, a strong culture this this knowledge this um, progressive environment where recruiting part-time staff who were also doing phds meant that we knew we had people for three years we knew when we had to then start planning for the next cycle of staff and equally, we knew that the quality of, of um, support that the players were getting, the athletes were getting was, was phenomenal because the, the, the development of a, a PhD student or this research practitioner type person is fantastic because they start with um, a belief and understanding of what they think they know, like we all do. And then when they've got into something as in-depth as they have during a PhD, the, what they leave the club with then is, is fantastic because not only do you have a, a good applied slanty work, but you also have rigour, you have a robustness in your interpretation, you have novel insights because people are doing things that no one's done before. So that's kind of the, the base, the, the high-level principle of, of how we operate.
0: So where did it... So you, the research questions that these guys are kind of taking and and implementing within their, obviously their PhD, but as well as in their kind of practical environment, whether it be the the school or the club, where does that come from? What's the process where that little bit gets taken care of? Does that come straight from the university or is the collaboration from um, giving questions from like an applied setting and the two come together to some sort of kind of agreement for a question or what's the process there?
2: The, the the process is all based on my failed PhD. Um, <laughs> when I say failed, I did pass it. Um, but it, it was almost my probably my sense of fulfilment when I finished my PhD. Um, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I did it in this area because I learned everything that I don't want anyone ever to do. So I did my PhD in hydration and fluid balance, which um, is a fantastic area because it, it's it's so complex in terms of Everything it interacts with it allows you to get into the mechanisms and the understanding of, of the physiology really well. And also, then you look at the the historical debate within the literature. It's, it's phenomenal. You can sp- well, I spent four years reading about it, and I don't understand anything about it. Um But you can spend you can spend a lifetime, and you'll and you won't get it. I don't think. So I I spent these uh, these four years doing my variety of lab-based studies and a few field-based studies, um, to conclude that rugby players should drink when they're thirsty. And the, <laughs> the, the, the take-home message to that when I told, and I was, again, I was working in a club at the time, so when people used to say, what's your PhD on? And I'd say, um, fluid balance and homeostasis, uh, and sodium homeostasis in, in rugby players. And they'd probably, their eyes would light up a bit and they'd say, what did you find? And I'd say, that rugby players should drink when they're thirsty. Um, which is so underwhelming in terms of its practical application. It's almost it, it almost um, it almost turns people off research. So one of the so one of the philosophies I then had for future research was we need to start doing research with people that can then use and and within the going back to the hydration work, you know I can tell you why people should drink when they're thirsty, and and I can tell you what happens if they don't drink when they're thirsty, but people don't care because Players are drinking when they're thirsty anyway. So it almost goes back to um, the the underlying philosophy of, of why we do research and, and what we're trying to do. And I and I believe um, I didn't enjoy my PhD and I believe my PhD was was to understand why why something happened. Um but it but it almost created this this unhelpful um this unhelpful outcomes I think. And and there, there are other areas that, that do this and the and one of the coaches um that I was working with at the time who was um they the, the coaches don't have to embrace academic research um to almost to to allow it to work but but those that don't embrace academic research sometimes are the best to work with because they're the most challenging and the coach at the time said to me he said um there's two types of research and they either produce something that's interesting or helpful and he said most research just produces something that's interesting and, and that really stuck with me because I thought my PhD produced something that was really interesting that we'll be placed to drink on a Thursday it's not helpful because they're doing it anyway so what what the how the philosophy then evolved was to let's make sure that whatever research we do is helpful to the end user and and then you kind of you change your philosophy of how you think about research and you think about well how can this help practice and we're not talking about um, on a an epidemiology or a population level. We're talking about in a club. So we're talking about, well, how can it be used? And then we work back, and we work back through the steps of of defining the research question. And the research question needs to be driven by the practical questions that people have in the field. Because if people have practical questions in the field, and we can apply academic research, um, uh, research principles to answering those, it's a no-brainer. It's going to be helpful because even if we don't find what we thought we we're going to find, it's still helpful to to know that actually um, this isn't what we thought it was. And you know, again, the, there are there are examples of this, and, and a recent example and that we, that we had around um, this area was looking at um, total distance GPS um, in rugby league and looking at game speed for whether we're, whether we're going to be successful or not. And I suppose when you watch a game and you and you um you, you see a game, you think that actually if we can maintain a high game speed where we're gonna be more successful because we're gonna be um, if we're fit enough, we're gonna then fatigue the opposition, etc. But then if you if you look at the data and, and almost work back through the context, well we know that the research shows that game speed is higher when you defend than when you attack. So we don't wanna do more attack defending than attacking so actually if we end up with more a higher game speed we're probably doing more inefficient work and one of the the under one of the underlying principles to this almost this joint research question and, and philosophy is coaches won't believe what they read in papers in in my experience they because they think well it's not relevant cause it's not their team but actually when you do research with their players and on their team and they see it firsthand. They buy into it. They can't not buy into it because the, the data is is what it is. It's, it's their players. It's real. It's, it's their philosophies. So actually, as soon as you do some helpful research, which you've both agreed on the research question and you get an answer, that leads to so many more questions around their players, which can then open up this, this almost this whole world of applied research within an organization.
0: Mm-hmm. So is that, so when you mentioned the, the, the practical questions in the field is that happening elsewhere where this where this situation at Leeds Beckett isn't been replicated <clears throat> with researchers or are there this yeah this is going off a, a topic that I don't didn't particularly want to go down but with it with an agenda of their own rather than going to the people that are going to be reading it and then reflecting back and then cre- answering a question that they have rather than answering their own question. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I'll give you two examples of um, of this, and um, if the reviewers of the papers are reading, um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I did I did a paper. We worked with um, the female rugby league team, um, uh, international rugby league team, and we they asked us to evaluate their physical characteristics. So we measured their characteristics against a standard testing battery. Um, and went to publish the paper. And the first time we submitted it, the reviewer rejected it because the um, the players' characteristics were non-elite; they they weren't representative of an elite sample. We tested the international team. We couldn't get any better. It wasn't our <laughs> fault; they weren't any good. But but almost within the within the literature, it it, it almost looked like an om- anomaly because we had these players which weren't and and I think and and the other example. Um, we had was the uh, again in rugby league some work around hydration and with with female athletes they we got asked to evaluate their um, hydration status showing the game now our philosophy was if the governing body had that question and asked us to answer it we should publish it because others may have that question and again it was it was it was a struggle to get that published because it was a case of well we know what the hydration status is they're fine but but if it, they were fine why would people ask us to do it so to, <laughs> to to answer your question without offending on anybody um yeah but but i think it's, it's driven by probably by i think through um almost what academia has become which um is is very very complex and complicated and i almost think at times this 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 polarized approach of um within some research that is so complex that it has no application um, or has very little application to the practitioner because they don't understand it. And you can argue then that it's, it's the practitioners at fault for not being able to understand it. But actually, most academics don't understand it because it's, it's so complex. So how would we expect them to understand it? Um, so I think that the whole, the whole question of are others doing it? Yes. Are a lot of people doing it? No. Um, why don't a lot of people do it? Because one of the reasons is within within, within academia, our um, our KPIs in terms of um, what we need to do for the institution. The applied research doesn't typically typically get published in as we'll say high impact journals, which are how sometimes research is is determined based on its quality. So some people are possibly turned off by it. Um, where actually once you create a model in terms of um, you see its, its impact and how people use it, it, it's it's unclear why you wouldn't do it this way. Um, and I think that's one of the key things that in terms of um, the success and, and why we will continue doing this it, because people use it and people actually take the research and apply it within the field. And I think that, the, the, so the the first criticism there was probably academia potentially making some things over complicated, but then the other the other side of it is that historically practice hasn't, hasn't been receptive to, to research. And if I'm an academic who's doing research, why would I spend my time doing research for somebody who doesn't want to use it? So again, you've got kind of the, these um, these two ends of the continuum between. Something that's overly complicated the practitioner doesn't understand it, therefore won't use it. Therefore, the academic turn is turned off by, well, I'm not going to waste my time trying to help someone that doesn't want to be helped. So therefore, I'll answer my own research questions, um, which kind of is an extreme example. Because actually, you look at a lot of the, um, a lot of work going on at the moment and it's, and it's brilliant in terms of its, its usefulness. Um, but I think that's probably the extreme of why academic research doesn't work sometimes.
0: So the one, um, the one obvious question that comes off the back of that is how can we, or I suppose I say we, the, the royal we, how can you communicate that research better? Probably not in your case, less so in your case, but how can we communicate that better so coaches are more receptive to it?
2: I would I would argue we don't do, me personally, within the project, we don't do a good job of communicating it outside of our team. And the example of that is I was... Um, a meeting recently and, and some school teachers from from the south of england were there and they were asking questions that that we'd answered in our research and published and i, I mentioned it and he kind of looked at me and was like well how was i meant to know about that i can't access the journals that you're publishing because i'm not an institution um so and i know that's something that, that you're very passionate about in terms of sharing research so um how how do we communicate it better i think that the research almost needs to be the, the best way you can share research with a with a practitioner is involve them in the process as opposed to involve them in the outcome. Because again, you're looking at what academia, the challenges within that, you know, we're tasked with writing papers and I'll be honest, sometimes it takes longer to write a non-academic article than it does an academic article because you need to be more creative in your, in your writing. So, um, if an academic gets to the end of their study and they then want to share, share that to the non-academic community, sometimes the easy option is well, I might just do another study because uh, <laughs> because because it, it's easier to do than than disseminate this. Um, but actually, involving them in in the process of you know research design. Um, so what do you think we should do? And and naturally, this isn't a case of of saying that. Academics can't design studies, and practitioners should design studies. It's it's hundred percent not, but it's it's probably more around practitioners and those in the field should help add some context to it, um, and then the the academic or the researcher can then obviously add the rigor and the robustness. Because it's what what we, what I'm not promoting is that we just end up doing loads of really applied, poor quality studies which aren't controlled. Naturally, the conclusions nobody can make sense of them what we're talking about is something that's in between that that is relevant that's helpful and I think one of the things that um that practitioners don't don't appreciate one in terms of time it takes to do a study and two in terms of the the limited amount of things you can look at in a study in terms of making in terms of your research question so And that's, I think, why our model has been relatively successful, because we've had a large number of students working in a small area. So having one PhD student within a club, you might answer three, four, five research questions. Well, what happens if the... And and those research questions take time to answer. But what happens if that organisation then wants more questions answering and the PhD student can't answer them? So there almost becomes this frustration... So actually having a team within an organisation or almost a team behind students. So, so we, we have research fellows and postdocs that almost um, sit behind the PhD students in the club. So that if, if we get overflow questions, that they can go to the research fellows to then answer, to then kind of feedback in. And we almost, um, we almost present this on a continuum. So you have the continuum of um, the practice against academia. And on the on the on the practice side of the um of the continuum you have the the S and C coach, the, the director of performance, the physios, etc., the people who are working kind of on the coal face. You take a step back from that and you've got your PhD students who kind of have a foot in both camp, and you take a step further further back from that and you have your um your academics, your research fellows, your statisticians, your chartered psychologists, your registered nutritionists, etc. And the way that you can kind of um, manage expectations around research questions and, and answers is almost use, using that continuum of, of where the question will drop. Now, if it's a quick question and it can be answered relatively, relatively easy, but it's still of interest, the PhD student can do it. If it's more complex, it can move along along the chain. And the way that that we kind of define that in terms of simplicity is, is research questions can be classified in two ways. Simply, you know, is this going to be useful this season or is it a next season? And something this season, everybody knows the expectations and manages um, and, and understands when the, when the findings will come out and when they can be used. There's nothing worse than when, um, than when you all agree a research question. And it, and it literally takes twelve months to do. And actually, that coach that agreed it, A isn't there anymore. B, the competition structure's changed, or C, the participants that you use for that study have all been released by the club. <laughs> it has, then you might as well have just you, you might as well have just done something external. So actually, operating these almost these um, this season and next season research questions concurrently helps everybody feel comfortable that they're they're getting something that's, that's useful that season, but also that there is a bigger strategic um, picture to what to what's going to happen.
0: Just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Ben. Uh, I just want to draw your attention to the audio abstracts, which are now live on strengthofscience.com. So if you haven't heard of the audio abstracts, they are basically um, a way of an author communicating their research in a, in a more digestible way a fun way uh, through video and audio so this week i published an episode of the audio abstracts with richie bolger who discusses um, coaches perceptions of resistance training so i thought that was a really interesting paper so richie spends 15 minutes just going through it and giving his kind of methodology behind it and just discussing the paper uh, in a bit of in a bit of depth and gives you a real kind of an insight into the into the author's view of a specific paper. So there's six or seven episodes up now with plenty more to come and some really exciting uh, papers to be discussed. So you can check that out at strengthofscience.com. So I hope you enjoy part two with Ben and I'll speak to you soon. I just want to mentioned something that you you touched upon a minute ago, which was the the kind of cycle of the of research I've put as a, a little note to myself. And that I mean we spoke about it because I wasn't aware of how funding is is gained from obviously the impact of the previous research and the little kind of little circle. Would you mind just explaining that? Because people I'm not quite sure people are aware of that. Hopefully it's not just me who's an idiot when it comes to that kind of thing, but That'd be, I think that would be useful for people.
2: So, I'll start in terms of a real basic... Um, f- this is a, a simplistic way in which I can kind of um, explain the, re- the research process. So, the first process would be you would uh, create a research question. The second would be you would um, gain ethical approval, you'd recruit your participants, you collect your data, you analyse your data, you write your research paper, you submit your, your paper for peer review... Um, if you're lucky 12 months later the paper's then published and you know at that point that's probably the maybe the traditional academic kind of knowledge is created read your paper try and understand it where we challenge our students on on integrating that research back into practice so okay take your findings and now make them stick and if you can't make them stick and you've done them how's anyone else going to make them stick and and then that kind of then can be considered into the, the next the next part of the, the research question so that they may change their methodology slightly now obviously within that process um, we need to secure funding to support research students So that's where our kind of joint funding between a member of staff and, and a PhD student would, would fund that um, but and this this process this kind of um, this, this nine-step process if you will we we believe that if you get the first one wrong, the whole systems the whole systems flawed. So the first the first step is around creating research questions. Now, if you get the research question wrong, um, even slightly within context, you'll struggle to then recruit part, relevant participants. So if I'm if I'm trying to work with um, a coach or you know a high performance director. And I come up with a research question and pose it to them, can I recruit your participants? And the, the question is not relevant to them. The answer is no. Um, so what you then do, the traditional sports science, um, uh, is you then recruit university students. So you then get your findings from your population group who potentially have completely different physiology to, to the elite athletes. You then submit your paper for peer review. It gets published. And... Um, the people who you did the research for don't have access to that paper, so don't read it. When they do read it, they get turned off because it's it's on students, not on their athletes. And it almost creates this kind of negative, um, it, it's interesting but not helpful kind of notion around research, where if you both agree the research questions, you both then agree that, yes, you can do this research and you can recruit from our our team, you know, you you offer the study out for those that want to volunteer to participate, and then you then the then the, the information is then shared along the process, as opposed to waiting, you know, 12, 18 months until it's published.
0: Mm-hmm. So someone like, say, Tim Gabbett, for instance, he's clearly making his fine his his research stick. Is apart from the the conference, <laughs> apart from the conferences and workshops that he runs. How is future research being um, helped by the fact that he's making that stick now?
2: Is yeah. it or not? I, I think I think Gabbert's um, done a phenomenal job in terms of making um, research real, and, mm-hmm. and he's he's the, the simplicity of the acute chronic ratio um, is that that everybody's using it, and you know we can probably debate. It's it's rigor and it's, and its robustness um, in terms of a purely academic, but in terms of useful data, I think it's 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 phenomenal, it's excellent. But I think when when you when you when you asked the question before around um, around are a lot of people are doing this? Well, well, Gabbard's the the almost the, one of the original practitioner um, academics. You know, he was somebody who was working in practice, and there were others at the time. You know, Dan Bake was one of them as well. That were publishing as they were working in practice. So everything that they published, um, or most stuff they published, a practitioner picked up and said, "Oh, that helps because I had that problem as well," or "I didn't know that either." Um, and it, and that almost created and you know whether that is why Gabbott can publish two hundred papers a year, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but that almost re- that almost really helped, I think, um, sell this applied, sell the usefulness of the applied research. So. I think I I would say that the, the way that research and information is being disseminated, I think publications is fundamentally important. And for me, without, unless a paper's published, um, evidence isn't, um, evidence isn't there because the, the publication process, as frustrating as it is and as slow as it is, it's a check and challenge in terms of it's gone through peer review and, um, you know, we can argue around the, the philosophy of peer review but it's gone through peer review and it's, it's then published and it's published for people to then progress and challenge I think sometimes when you know if if I'm not saying that all our when I'm saying when I'm criticizing peer review um, publications for being slow I'm definitely not saying that we should stop it and just all write blogs because you know 90% of blogs people can't respond to um probably 80% of blogs are probably incorrect um, so I think that the way that the process of um, publication you know fundamental for generating evidence and knowledge I think the, the work that you're doing around the, the podcast um, around the, you know, the, the talking abstracts I think um, the, the number of um, the number of conferences applied conferences that are going on at the moment is fantastic which are really really helpful for the practitioner a lot of those are free um, because again they kind of reinforce this these applied researchers who want to share so they they're putting on free conferences um, in addition to you know the the obvious the infographic boom that that Jan has Mer, done to share information so we kind of look at the the information information sharing mechanisms, mechanisms that we have and they're brilliant um, I think that what we probably need to do is to, to to almost as the as the as a practitioner um, just make sure that we keep our critical eye for what we're looking at because the reason that the full paper has mo- has most of the information in the infographic doesn't the talking abstract won't um, the podcast will be very selective on what it does and doesn't say um, so we've we've got to we've got to keep that in mind and I think that the more the more information sharing that goes on, the more people will become critical and actually challenge the information and therefore develop their own practice.
0: And this is, just while I, while I remember, and this is definitely not teed up beforehand. This is, um, I was actually looking at it today, and this is something that you've done with, the, with your conference to promote the work that your guys have, um, the, kind of, the, the journey that your guys have gone through. Tell us a little bit about that, and I'd be interested to know: is there anything else like that that is going on?
2: The the Carnegie Adolescent Ruby Research Project.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So,
2: um, yeah, we're, we're not we're we're one hundred percent not the first people to do it. Okay. The the uh, the um, we're probably the one of the f- the first groups to give it a name. Um, okay. Right. Uh, which um, which was almost to give it an identity, to be honest, because we had loads of uh, research going on that that. That needed to sit under an umbrella term, so we came up with the the car project, um, because that was um, an almost mission statements around that to to almost um, reinforce new students when they when they join the project into why we were doing it, which was fundamentally to to understand more around youth rugby and also to to produce helpful research that could be used by um, by practitioners at the end. So every year we hold our Annual car conference, which um, we've got this year on the, on the twelfth of March, and and genuinely we we do that conference to to share our research outside of academic circles, and I suppose one thing that um, so that there are loads of really good academic conferences where academics share excellent research and and share knowledge, but I sit sometimes in those conferences and I wonder whether it's almost a case of preaching to the choir. So. Um, I was at a conference recently where um, where some work was being presented, and it was excellent in terms of its originality, its novelty. And one of the questions from the audience was, um, "Do coaches use this?" and, and "Are co- coaches using the finding?" And the answer was no because they didn't know about it. So if we so we need to almost spend as much effort disseminating to non-academic groups as we do to the academic groups, and and again, sharing to academic groups is, is really important because that then progresses research, and if research progresses, then we all hopefully know a little bit more. But actually, these um, these applied conferences that that now exist for the practitioner, um, they're fund- they're fundamental to progression of and development of practice. But but I, I would almost argue they're probably in their infancy a little a little bit and and. Uh, rightly so, we struggle a little bit in terms of how to pitch it because we don't want to undersell what we do by making or um, or undermine the people that come by making it too simplistic. But equally, we don't want to make it too complex that it has no relevance or translation to the to the person who's using it. So we're still playing about with our our feedback mechanisms in terms of how can we make this accessible to all, um, which. Uh, hopefully, we're getting somewhere near, and and again, I think that your work with podcasts and 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 similar others and 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 different ways of sharing information do with that. But it's um, yeah, we're we're just we're we're genuinely passionate about passionate about doing this applied research and sharing it and and people using it, and it is a a frustration more of myself rather than the, the people when I chat to people who have questions in the field. That we've answered during research and they didn't know about them and and it is a challenge so that's kind of where i'm challenging myself to actually you know how can we actually get that information out there and disseminate that work
0: mm-hmm. so i'm first i'm just conscious time but there's one thing i just wanted to ask you and this is from my experience going around to, to various different clubs a lot are doing like you said <clears throat> quite a while ago um everyone's doing their own little studies whether they be on the you know on their academy or just doing their own little projects that aren't obviously going to have the the rigor that going through the peer review process is, is going to kind of generate but people are going to do it and and that that's just the way it is what what in what advice would you give them guys to actually make it um as, as useful as possible in their environment and obviously not that like I said, the, the rigour that's going to go for the peer review process, but just as, as useful as possible so they can tell the conclusions that are actually almost there, if nothing else.
2: <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Neil Potts, who's at, at Scottish Rugby Union, he, um, he's excellent with this and, and he's so passionate about when he talks about it. He talks about sports science students going through this immense training program of understanding research, rigor control, working in the field and forgetting about it all. And, and I think that's the, um, that's the key message is, is remembering the key principles of research around, you know, what is your independent variable? What is your dependent variable? What, uh, what controls have you got in place? And so without making it overly dry, I think the answer is, is making sure that actually the, the questions that they're answering are well-designed um, and you can answer them because it's part of spending time doing a research project if it's not well designed therefore you get the answer to the question and you kind of shrug your shoulders because you've got no confidence in it but I, but I think that um, I think one, one excellent way of doing that would be for, for people to re- probably people in, in practice to reach out to academics more because academics being honest especially in their area they, they love doing research and at times one thing they struggle with. Is um, finding time to collect data. So, if you're in an organisation where you have a question and you have data coming out of your ears, which were probably at that that stage in um, in the evolution where where it, where, it um, where that's happening, why not align that with an academic in terms of doing some applied research? And it's a win-win for all. And I think that I'm, I believe that the, the the applied research model really works really well but I equally believe that um, some, coaches who, some S&C coaches who aren't academic are unbelievable in terms of what they can get athletes to achieve. So it's not a one-size-fits-all that the new model is that all S&C coaches should do or have PhDs, because I don't believe that. But I think that actually having that balance of some having it and some working towards it and others not, but appreciating it, I think works really well.
0: So last but not least... Um, information around the car project as a whole, and information around yeah you as kind of a group of actual people.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, um, so Twitter,
0: Twitter are sharing things, etc.
2: Um, we don't we don't actually have a um, a Twitter for the for the car for the car project. So um, people can find me on twenty three Ben Jones, um, which. I do share. Most of the work through that. the The research team um, that we've got is is unbelievable in terms of their one, their work ethics, their philosophies. So, um, Dr. Kevin Till and I started this project a few years ago. The the students that have come through, that some of which have now joined us as staff, um, and I'm honestly too many too many to mention. Um, but it's it's a great team where systematic, I think where it works well is we're systematically evaluating various aspects of, of youth development. A lot of them overlap. The guys work together really well. Um, you'll see on a lot of our publications that, that they're a group effort, they're a team effort. There's lo- lots of co-authors, and that's a genuine co-authorship in terms of both from the research design to the data collection, to the data interpretation, to, um, to the write-up. It's, it, it works well in terms of creating that, that culture. And I think it's probably similar to when you put a group of athletes together, they become very competitive against each other. Our guys w- won't mind me saying that they are competitive against each other in terms of who can publish the most um, <laughs> or, or work the longest hours at times. So it's, it's a great group um, to work with and, and, and they lead a lot of the work themselves.
0: And where can people uh, get to know more about the, the conference? Is it 2nd uh, of March,
2: did you say? Uh, 12th of March. 12. Um, the 12th of March. If they uh, people can have a look on um, Leeds Beckett website, um, so Leeds Beckett, and just search for car conference, they'll be able to find it that way. They can search on uh, my Twitter; they'll be able to, able to find it there. And um, and I'll give you and I'll give you a link to share on uh, on your Twitter as well.
0: No, definitely, because I think Kev... Did Kev share it today? Yes, today Kev. Being yeah, one day. Kev shared it today, yeah okay. yeah. okay, I'll make sure, yeah, that goes out at the same time as um, as the episode, so all good. Right, mate, well, thank you very much for 42 minutes of your time.
2: Pleasure. And uh,
0: we'll keep in touch.
2: Yes, thank you, Bob. All right, mate, see you soon. See you soon, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for tuning in to episode 121 of the Pasty Performance Podcast just Want to give a shout out to the guys at Val Performance for sponsoring the episode today. So, they are the makers of the Nordboard and the new groin bar. So, if you want to check out more about the, the groin bar, the hip and groin measuring device, you can go to uh, groinbar.com or you can follow them on Twitter at groinbar. So, a massive thanks to both sponsors, Val Performance and Coach Me Plus, and hope to. Speak to you in episode 122 and 123, and so on, and with some great guests coming up on the show. So, speak to you soon.